Welcome to episode 148 of This Week in Linux, your weekly source for Linux GNU's. From the Destination Linux Network, I'm Michael Tunnell. If you're new to the show, this is the podcast that will keep you up to date with what's going on in the Linux world, and I'll give you my take as a 20-year-plus Linux user. Coming up on this week's episode, we have some exciting news from NASA because the Mars drone that they have that is powered by open source and Linux has successfully flown, and we'll talk about that more in details later on. And then also we're going to get into the distro news. We have Ubuntu 2104. Hearsuit Hippo has been released, as well as the Ubuntu flavors for 2104. And we're also going to be talking about Endeavor OS for their April release of their distro. Then in the app news section, we're going to talk about KDE Gear 21.04, also what KDE Gear is, because that's a renaming of a different thing. We'll get to that later. Uh, Geary 40 email client has a new release, and Jellyfin media player has been released, and we'll talk about what that means, because there's a lot of cool stuff in the app news section. And then we're going to jump into the drama section, because it turns out research papers can get an entire university banned from the Linux kernel contributions. Also, IBM has been in a little bit of hot water with some confusion over their employee development policies, and we'll talk about that and so much more coming up on this week's episode of Twill, your weekly source for Linux good news. First in the show this week, we're going to be talking about the drone or the helicopter that was successfully flown on Mars by NASA, which is the Ingenuity. So this is a tiny NASA helicopter, which is powered by, it's actually the first powered aircraft to fly on another planet, you know, in this case, Mars, naturally. And this is an engineering feat that was done with Linux open source software, and also some custom-built programs by NASA and the uh, JPL, or the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and they created a whole framework for this kind of thing called F-Prime. So this is a really cool thing. In the video, if you're watching the video version of the show, you will see some uh, video for this. And it might not look like much because it's a very limited video, but the you know Mars is only a, a third of Earth's gravity, making it seem like it's easier to accomplish this. But also, Mars's atmosphere has only one one hundredth of the the density of Earth's air, so achieving flight is significantly difficult uh, thing to do, especially when there's like eleven minutes delay every time a, a command is sent, and you know to get feedback and that sort of stuff. So this is very impressive, even if in the video doesn't seem that impressive. <laughs> Anyway, Ingenuity is purely a technology demonstration. It's not designed to support the uh, Perseverance mission, which is searching for signs of ancient life and collecting rock and dirt samples for later missions to return to Earth. Uh, Its mission is to show that it's possible to fly on Mars using commercial off-the-shelf hardware and open source software. Now, in addition, this is awesome in general. Like this is so cool that this is, we talked about this in a previous episode of Twill, but to see that it has been successful and they were able to make this happen, which is just fantastic. They also have mentioned how many people have ultimately contributed to this, making this happen. So they say that on GitHub, nearly 12,000 developers contributed to engineering Ingenuity's software via open source. And yet most of these developers are not even aware at all that they helped make this possible to have a Martian helicopter flight. So GitHub announced that they're doing something to let those people know that they have contributed, even though they may not know. So Mar- they're creating a Mars 2020 helicopter mission badge on the GitHub profile of every developer who's contributed to the specific versions of any open source projects and libraries used by Ingenuity. And uh, GitHub Senior Director of Developer Relations, Martin Woodward, explained that many of the people who are getting a badge probably have no idea their software is being used to fly a helicopter on another planet. And we wanted to make sure everyone was recognized for their contributions to this incredible human achievement. So that is just fantastic. One, I'm so happy to see that this was successful. It's very cool, but also I love the fact that the all the developers and contributors to the different code that is making it possible to do this are going to be informed that they helped. So that's fantastic. If you want to learn more about this or check out the video for yourself of the actual like the reaction from the people at NASA and that sort of stuff, I'll have links to all of this in the show notes below. Up next in the show, we're going to talk about Ubuntu 2104 because it has arrived on the scene and with it some significant changes. So here's Suit Hippo, the code name for 2104, has brought some big changes. And one, the first one would be Wayland by default. 
Now, Wayland won't be default for everyone because all configurations don't, no, they don't all work that well with Wayland yet. So for example, if you have an NVIDIA graphics card, there might be some issues. So by default, it will not be enabled. You could enable it if you want to, to experience it, but there you go. Uh, it's being powered by the Linux kernel 5.11 series. They've also changed the default firewall backend to be NF tables instead of IP tables. And while not a commonly discussed topic because it is such a low-level thing, this is kind of important for NF table versus IP tables because uh, this is a significant thing for progress related to uh, firewall backends because it means Ubuntu is joining other distributions like Fedora and OpenSUSE in use of NF tables by default. Also, 2104 has support for smart card authentication, uh, OpenZFS 2.0 support, uh, Pipewire support for improved screen recording and better audio handling on sandbox applications. And also, they're still using GNOME 3.38 for the shell, but they have updated a lot of the applications for using the GNOME 40 stack for the app, so that is worth noting. And also, Ubuntu's uh, default theme, Yaru, has received a redesigned dark theme with accessibility improvements for navigation, which is great to hear. Uh, I'm a big fan of dark themes in general, but also really love seeing it when people are putting effort into improvements for accessibility and that sort of stuff. That's fantastic. So also, Ubuntu 21.04 makes a play for the enterprise desktop. So they mentioned that this is a, you know, they're going to have Active Directory support for Microsoft's Active Directory, or AD. So in the corporate world, uh, Windows still has significant market share. Uh, one reason for that is really most a lot of a lot of enterprises rely on Microsoft Active Directory to manage users and connect them with different network resources and that sort of stuff. And there are ways to do this on Linux already, like native uh, LDAP, uh, Kerberos, PAMs, uh, the NSS modules. Uh, there's also a Samba Windbind and System Security Services Daemon or the SSSD. Uh, but they're not necessarily easy to set up depending on your distribution and that sort of stuff. But there are also some third-party programs such as like uh, Centrify Authentication Services and variety of other things to get uh, Active Directory set up on Linux and that sort of stuff. And uh, Ubuntu is basically like 20.10 20, 20 was like the first one they started working with this. And 21.04 has introduced some big improvements to support with the ADs being able to uh, set up AD domain and installation for central configurations and a variety of other things, which joins other distributions like uh, Red Hat, uh, Fedora, SUSE, and some other distros who are putting in effort to AD uh, group policy, stuff like that. So this is going to be in very much improved for the enterprise workstation approach to Ubuntu. So it's, it's really good to see them putting effort into that because the more the more distributions who have Active Directory support can you know transition people more quickly on the workstation enterprise side rather than having to use Microsoft uh, Windows for the Active Directory. So that's fantastic to hear. And the more distros that do that, the better. So if you'd like to learn more about the latest release of Ubuntu 2104, you can check the links in the show notes below. Now we have moved on from Ubuntu itself, but I wanted to stick on the Ubuntu flavors section because 2104 has uh, lots of updates for the different flavors. So of course there's Kubuntu, Zubuntu, Lubuntu, Ubuntu Studio, Ubuntu Mate, Ubuntu Budgie, Ubuntu Chillin, which I will probably always pronounce incorrectly. All of the core updates for Ubuntu 2104 are also a part of each of the flavors, such as the update to the Linux kernel for the 5.11 series. But there's also a bunch of individual things for each of the flavors. So let's break down to a few of them, get some highlights for each of those flavors. So let's start off with Lubuntu. Lubuntu is the official Ubuntu flavor that uses the uh, lightweight, cute desktop environment for LXQt. And the latest release of Lubuntu 2104 comes with LXQt 0.16 with many improvements improvements over the previous version of LXQt. And if you want to check out what happened and all the different things that for LXQt 0.16, check out Twill 124. We talk about all that happened in that release. Uh, also, Lubuntu 21.04 comes with the uh, LXQt Archiver 0.3, which is based on ngrandpa, and this is now included by default. ngrandpa is the Mate, uh, Mate Archiver tool. Uh, Ubuntu 
uh, Lubuntu 21.04, also updated Qt with 5.15.2, and many, many more things. We'll have links in the show notes for Lubuntu. And next up, we're going to talk about Zubuntu because there's a significant amount of changes for Zubuntu. So XFCE 4.16 is included in this release, which is the first release with the GTK3 only XFCE 4.16 because for previous versions of Zubuntu, they were using the um, uh, the hybrid GTK2 and GTK3, whereas now 4.16 has the GTK3 only. We talked about that in a previous episode as well. Links in the show notes. And also in the Zubuntu, now comes pre-installed with HexChat, IRC, and Synaptic for uh, advanced package management. They are now using the minimal install option. You can now use the minimal install for the Ubiquity installer for installing a minimal version of a Zubuntu desktop. They've also done a lot of UI tweaks and UX tweaks. Uh, for example, they have made modifications to the desktop, the application menu, the panel, keyboard shortcuts, file manager, and many, many more things, including, I'm going to pronounce this incorrectly, but the Ayatana indicators. That's almost guaranteed wrong. But this is really interesting that they're introducing that because they uh, the Ayatana indicators are a big factor of Ubuntu Mate. So those were introduced, I think, in 2010 and the, uh, for Ubuntu Mate. And the, the Ayatana... I, this got to be wrong. Indicators is a fork of Ubuntu indicators that aim to be a cross-distro compatible and reusable for any desktop environment. So this is really cool because this is a a, a, a project for indicators on different DEs and different distros. And if you're not familiar with the word indicator replies to or refer, refers to, this is a uh, a term to describe the system tray icons that a lot of applications have. So, for example, GNOME removed the ability to do system tray icons in uh, the GNOME shell, which not a lot of people are happy about. But there's also an extension that integrates with the Ayatana indicators making support possible. So this is a really cool uh, project because for those who use applications that have system tray menus and system tray icons, they do tend to want those. So there you go. And this is really nice to see that the multiple flavors are, int- are introducing the support for that project. Ubuntu, tw- Ubuntu Mate 2104 also ships with Mate a 1.24 desktop environment, which features a new theme called the Yaru Mate, which has uh, modifications of the existing Yaru theme from the Ubuntu team. Uh, it also has a new printer indicator and some new command line apps, including this with uh, NeoFetch, HTOP, and INXI. Not sure if it's Inksy. I don't know, probably not, but there you go. Uh, let's move on to Ubuntu Budgie because there's a few, quite a few highlights for this one. So Ubuntu Budgie released their first Raspberry Pi image with this release. They also have updated the Budgie desktop environment to 10.5.2. They have a brand new design for the Budgie themes with a Mojave, uh, they call it the Mojave Makeover. And also they have uh, some, uh, some uh, kind of like a Big Sur inspired sort of stuff. Uh, they've also made some interesting stuff with their uh, window shuffler. So they have some improvements to the layouts compatibility with the window shuffler. And also what's really, really interesting is that they have received feedback for the window shuffler. Because if you okay, real quick, if you're not familiar with what window shuffler is, it's essentially their own unique uh, window tiling capability built into Budgie. And they have said that they have received feedback that window shuffler also works on Mate and the GNOME shell inside of Xorg, and even XFCE. So this makes it possible that you can maybe give give a try for Window Shuffler on a different DE, and uh, that is very, very cool. Uh, moving on to Kubuntu and Ubuntu Studio. So Kubuntu has the this release of 2104 has KDE Plasma 5.21, which is fantastic. It's the latest version of KDE Plasma, and this is uh, Kubuntu is one of my favorites in terms of KDE distros because they put so much effort in the out of box out of box experience. And having the KDE Plasma 5.21 included is just really exciting because there's so many cool things on 5.21, like the new kickoff menu, the new system monitor app, and so many more things. Links in the show notes for the release of 5.21. We talked about that on Twill before as well, so link link in the show notes for that. And in a a collaboration with Kubuntu, Ubuntu Studio also comes with KDE Plasma 5.21. Plus, they have many updates to many of their media production tools that this distro is known for. And then we're going to jump to the next one is Ubuntu Chillin' or Kylin'. I'm not sure. Pretty sure it's Chillin', but don't know. 
This has an update to the UK UI 3.0 desktop environment, which and also various different updated apps and that sort of stuff. Uh, this is a really interesting desktop environment because it's a combination of GTK and Qt, and it uses some elements of Kwin and some elements that are custom, that sort of stuff. So if you want to check it out, uh, Ubuntu Chillin is also updated with 2104. And there's also a bunch of remix updates. So there's the Ubuntu Cinnamon, Ubuntu Unity, and some others. So if you want to check it out, I have links to all of these things in the show notes below for the Ubuntu flavors for 2104. Up next in the show, in distro news, we're going to talk about Endeavor OS. So they've released their April release of 2021.04 for Endeavor OS. If you're not familiar, Endeavor OS is the spiritual successor to Intergos Linux. It is basically a distribution that is meant to be, it's an Arch-based distribution, but meant to be as close as possible to Arch without making like, massive changes. So it uses the Arch repositories for you know the, the, core, uh, the core repositories, the community repositories. They also have their own repository for extra features and stuff like that, but it's meant to be as close as possible uh, in the same way that Intergos was. Although Intergos was a little bit different in, in that regard. Uh, I was actually a part of the Intergos team back in the day, for those who were not aware. Uh, and, and Endeavor OS is basically what I always wanted Intergos to be. So that's cool. Uh, it's, more, it's much closer than Intergos was, and they're also trying to do what's uh, not trying to take on too much work that doesn't work, that doesn't make sense to do. So I'm really happy that uh, Endeavor OS is still uh, striving. And it's been about two years, I think. So very, very nice. Endeavor OS also has been working on expanding their network of mirrors. They've added two new mirrors. They're also working on their ARM support, as well as they have decided to drop the support for the Deepin desktop environment because of performance issues and that sort of stuff, which is something that I'm, I'm happy to see because uh, if there's an issue that doesn't make sense to continue having support for something, it makes sense for a distribution like this to not continue doing it because it would make people think that they have you know, that, that if because it's a part of the Endeavor OS installer at that time, they would think that it's okay to use and then, you know, run into those performance issues. So it makes sense that they would do this. Anyway, so this April release of Endeavor OS is, is powered by the Linux 5.11 kernel, the Mesa 21.0 graphics drivers. It also has available the NVIDIA graphics drivers for proprietary drivers uh, for 465.24.02, just rolls right off the tongue. Uh, and also they have added something that's pretty interesting for their, uh, it's not installed by default, but it's available in their uh, Endeavor OS custom repository for the VirtualBox uh, Oracle extensions pack, which basically makes it easy to have USB support and be able to do USB pass through and that sort of stuff, which is like, it's kind of annoying that VirtualBox does this in the first place, but in order to get this functionally, it does take, it requires you to go to the VirtualBox website, download the extensions pack, install the extension pack, and all that sort of stuff, and having it built into the repository is a nice way to solve some of those issues. Uh, they've also made some improvements to the Welcome app for Endeavor OS and many other things. And the last thing I want to talk about is Endeavor OS has two new community additions. Uh, both are tiling window manager based. So they have for people who want to use BSPWM, they have that addition for X11 tiling manager. They also have the Sway edition for those who want Wayland tiling. So if you're interested in any of these things, uh, check out Endeavor OS. In, you have links and to all this stuff in the show notes below. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean and their app platform. DigitalOcean's app platform service is a solution to build modern cloud-native apps. You can use a simple, intuitive, and visually rich experience to rapidly build, deploy, manage, and scale your apps. It has support for multiple programming languages like Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby, and more. It also has support for static sites, Docker, and container images. And with the app platform, you get high scalability with zero infrastructure management. What does that mean? Well, you simply just point your GitHub or GitLab repository and let the app platform do all the heavy lifting for you, such as it handles the infrastructure like app runtimes, and dependencies so that you can push code to your into production with just a few clicks. It also handles your securing of your apps through uh, creating, managing, and renewing your SSL certificates, as well as protecting your apps from DDoS attacks. And with the app platform, you can run code with little to no customization because it uses open cloud native standards and automatically analyzes 
analyzes your code, creates containers, and runs them on Kubernetes clusters. As a listener of the This Week in Linux podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free, actually better than free, because you can get started by going to do.co slash DLN and get a $100 free credit. Again, go to do.co slash DLN to get that $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's app platform. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of This Week in Linux. Earlier this week, there was a surprising Linux kernel networking commit that created some drama related to a driver maintainer for the IBM-powered SR-IOV virtual NIC driver. The vNIC maintainer uh, updating patch contained the following quoted message. So this is from an email, and it says that as an IBM employee, you are not allowed to use your Gmail account to work in any way on vNIC. You are not allowed to use your personal email account as a hobby, you are an employee, uh, IBM employee 100% of the time. Please remove yourself completely from the maintainer's file. I grant you a one-time exception on contributions to vNIC to make this change. So, as you might expect, this got some attention. So IBM has provided a response to this, and it seems there's been a miscommunication issue. So they shared that contrary to the git commit, IBM promotes and encourages engagement in the Linux open source community regardless of whether they use their IBM email ID or personal email ID, whichever one is used. So uh, this is interesting because the statement said in the the commit is a very strong statement and also the statement from IBM is a complete contradiction to the first statement. So uh, when they were asked about the specific situation, since it suggests kind of like the opposite, uh, they responded with the VP of Open Technology at IBM, uh, Todd Moore explained, we respect our developers need to be individuals and their open source code contributed under a personal ID represents them and their resume. This was a one-off disagreement that should not have gone public as there are internal guidelines to resolve it. Often our contributors will have a personal GitHub ID and an IBM GitHub ID. We use tooling to track contributions under both IDs to ensure everyone gets credit towards our recognition program. We value and encourage contribution, whether it be code, code reviews, documentation, issue triage, or advocacy as a part of their careers or their own time. So this is interesting because in terms of the statement, it was it seemed like just a miscommunication between a internal conversation. But the IBM has uh, publicly stated that they do not have uh, rules or policies related to developers work requiring uh, their IBM IDs or IBM emails used and that sort of stuff. And it's it's very similar to how Red Hat does this in their in their terms of how they structure it. It just basically says you know you can. If you want to do public or uh, professional IDs, those are fine. It's if you're doing the development on the, your time being paid by IBM or Red Hat, then you need to just identify that that is this as that is the case. If you're doing it personally, that then use your own personal. That's fine too. So this is a, a thing that was really interesting because it created drama based on the commit. And when I first saw this, I was like, oh, okay, this is going to be this is going to be an issue. Turns out it was. And uh, but thankfully, it's just a miscommunication and that sort of thing. So it's not actually a problem. It's just a, a poorly worded email, I suppose. But it does it does bring up the, the idea of the, you know, which one should a developer use the personal indication of contribution or professional indication of contribution. So, of course, it means like a professional should it should be using the professional one for when when they're being paid to make it and a personal when they're not being paid to make it and that sort of stuff uh, but there are uh, some people who are confused by the 100% of the time thing and i think that's in based on the statements from IBM there's multiple people who have commented on this from IBM saying that this was just an internal situation that should not have ever become a thing because that's not how that's not their policies so i don't know where the the manager or the person who said the hundred percent not you know it's not a hobby or whatever that comes from but it has been confirmed by IBM that that is not the case so in terms of drama that's done but in terms of the personal versus professional indication of contribution that's an interesting topic because I do think that there are times where you know some companies uh, have not had a policy in that case. Like I think Apache doesn't have a policy. So if you work from a, with a, if you're paid by Apache, you use a personal anyway. 
Uh, and I think that there are, I, I could be wrong about that. I think it's Apache, but I'm not, I could be wrong. Uh, but it is, it is interesting to have that, that conversation. So if you want to, uh, you know, leave a comment below about that topic or in the forum thread that is for this show, uh, I'll have links to all this stuff in the show notes below. So there you go. To continue on with the drama section of the show, we now have a drama news section, apparently. Uh, so the Linux kernel has decided to ban the University of Minnesota from contributing Linux con- uh, Linux kernel contributions. Uh, so there's a lot to this topic, so we're going to go break it down uh, as much as possible. So hopefully you can understand what happened and going forward what's going to happen and the reactions from different people related to this this the kernel uh, decision. And this is because a doctoral student and an assistant professor at the University of Minnesota theorized that they could sneak vulnerabilities into open source software. So, of course, they naturally decided to do it directly to the most uh, popular uh, open source software ever made, which is the Linux kernel. And, uh, yeah, it backfired. So... Now, the entire university has been banned for offering future Linux kernel contributions. Now, if someone who's at the university didn't use their university email, they could probably bypass that ban, but the university itself has been banned, uh, and everybody who uses those domains to contribute. So a paper, uh, a research paper, is the cause of all of this. So the doctoral student and the assistant professor decided to make a paper on the feasibility of stealthily introducing vulnerabilities in open source software via hypocrite commits. That's a that's a mouthful. Uh, so that's this was slated to be presented at the proceedings of the 42nd IEEE Symposium on Security and Privacy next month. The paper describes how the authors submitted what's described as subtly subversive code contributions that would introduce error conditions into the operating system software, and it claims the researchers subsequently contacted Linux maintainers to prevent any bad code from actually ending up in the official release of the kernel. It further states that the experiment was vetted by the university's Inter-Institutional Review Board, the IRB, which determined that the project did not constitute human research and thus granted an ethical review waiver. Of course, the Linux kernel community has not taken has not taken this uh, this research as uh, well. They weren't happy about it. They pretty much do not agree with the IRB saying that it does not constitute human research because what you're doing is essentially wasting the time of everybody who has to do maintenance on the kernel and do code review and that sort of stuff. So you are essentially doing human research because you're testing whether or not you can get it past the humans, which is, again, uh, not the best decision by the review board, in my opinion. Anyway, moving on. Uh, Greg Crow Hartman, leading, one of the leading Linux kernel maintainers, wrote in a post to the Linux kernel mailing list, Our community does not appreciate being experimented on and being tested by submitting known patches that are either doing nothing on purpose or introduce bugs on purpose. Uh, Greg Crow Hartman then, decide, then declared a ban on all future contributions from anyone at the University of Minnesota and his, in, his intention to revert all of the poison commits that the project participants sneaked into the Linux kernel. He says that this, uh, this reversion plan affects 204 files with 306 insertions and 826 deletions. Why would the deletions of the factor? To be clear, that relates to someone submitting a commit that will delete something and they have to now review to see what that what di- what happened there so uh, other linux contributors and maintainers participating in the discussion were quick to condemn the deception uh, there was uh, an associate professor at computer science at north uh, northeastern university uh, wrote that academic research should not waste the time of a community and urged the linux community members to question the university of minnesota's irb to determine whether the experiment had received adequate review uh, they technically does say that there was a review on it, but we don't know if it was adequate or not because um, to say that this was not having some kind of human element is nonsense because of course it was because the code is going to be referenced by humans and tested and that sort of stuff. So you're wasting the human's time. So I don't know where, where how they decided to make that decision, but whatever. But there are some people who have uh, are disagreed with the decision. 
Uh, there was a crypto, uh, crypto, uh, a software engineer and a cryptographic engineer at Google tweeted remarks in disagreement of the banning of the university, stating that they shouldn't ban the entire university from this. But they basically are saying that they have to not only just go through the, the, the code that has been submitted from this research from these individual people, they don't know how far this goes. So they have to, they have now decided to re, uh, to like look through and vet the code that has been per, per submitted by anyone from the University of Minnesota. Pretty, I don't know if it's ever, but a significant portion anyway. So all of this wasted time and wasted effort created by this research paper, and uh, I put that in air quotes for those who are listening, the audio version. Uh, this is just such a ridiculous decision of, you know, trying to, you know, create a research paper by wasting so many people's time. And, and they're actually wasting a lot of money too, because the people who are work doing this stuff are, a lot of them are being paid by companies. So they're wasting a lot of people's money. Uh, they're, they're wasting foundation money. So uh, one of the people in also uh, in, involved in this situation insisted that the research did not lead to any vulnerabilities in public Linux code. So somehow that makes it okay. They defended the project's security-enhancing goal and apologized for wasting the Linux maintainers' time. They state, We respect open-source software volunteers and honor their efforts. Uh, we have never intended to hurt any OSS or OSS users. We did not introduce or intend to introduce any bug or vulnerability in OSS. So they say that the buggy patches were sent via email and did not ever become a Git commit in any Linux branch because maintainers were informed after the fact so they would not move forward with the bad code. However, if that's true, why would any of these reversions and testing have to be done? If that was if they was never actually committed, then what are they? I don't understand what that that statement says because it doesn't really make sense if they have to review things again. I don't know. Uh, so moving on, they also stated, "We would like to sincerely apologize to the maintainers involved in the corresponding patch review process. This work indeed wasted their precious time. We had carefully considered this issue, but could not figure out a better solution in this study." You might be thinking, like maybe they weren't doing it maliciously, trying to be a problem, but. That is really the the course of the per, the paper is assembly to submit uh you know problematic code and they they even say vulnerabilities in the title of the the paper, but in that process of going through this, there's also some inf- interesting stuff that I saw where one of the people involved in this was like basically claiming that they're being attacked for the code that they're submitting. So this person said, I respectfully ask you to cease and desist from making wild accusations that are bordering on slander, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I will not be sending any more patches due to the attitude that is not only unwelcome, but also intimidating to newbies and non-experts. So basically, the person who, one of the people who were submitting this code that they knew were problematic, knew that had potential bug introducing stuff, were also complaining that they were being called out for doing so. And the University of Minnesota has responded to this situation. They released a statement on Wednesday afternoon uh, stating from the Department of Computer Science and Engineering, they say that it has suspended the research project and plans to look into the approval process to determine whether the uh, whether remedial action uh, is necessary for future safeguards and that sort of stuff. So this is a very interesting topic because uh, I don't know if this has been done before. But uh, I actually also have, based on this research, I decided to perform my own research on the subject of would it be a bad idea to submit code that you purposefully know is bad code and potentially could introduce bugs into the most important open source project ever created. Um, unfortunately, my findings are, are too succinct to be placed in a research paper on its own. So instead, I'll just express them here. So my research has revealed the results. Is it a bad idea to submit code that you know is problematic to the Linux kernel? And my findings are, duh. If you'd like to learn more about this topic, I'll have links in the show notes below. So up next in the show, we're going to move from one problematic topic to uh, another. So this next ep- this next topic is about uh, Linux GUI apps running on Microsoft's WSL. So Microsoft this week released a preview version of the Windows subsystem for Linux GUI or the WSL G. 
uh, which provides a way to run Linux applications with graphical interfaces on Windows devices. The WSLG is the first public preview available for this uh, GUI application support in WSL2. Uh, last year, they talked about uh, supporting this, this. This was coming. They talked about this was going to be happening. Uh, and this is the first release of that. This also includes the ability to make use of 3D acceleration within these applications. Uh, now, this WSLG is comprised of Waylon, an X server, the Pulse audio server, and some other stuff supporting uh, the different applications communicating with uh, Windows, including free, uh, free RDP for interfacing between WSL and Windows with an RDP connection. So WSL2 is also, uh, it's not without issues in this case. So th there's still, you know, some issues in terms of like it uses half of your memory and a little bit more depending on your situation uh, to, to accomplish this. So it's not like it's just instantly, uh, a, you know, a huge thing, but it is still a problematic thing. And the reason why is, well, this is not good in any way at all, in my opinion. An application especially a GUI app for Linux running on WinWSL. The only reason for this is Microsoft basically doesn't want people to use Linux. And doing one of the reasons that the developers and uh, programmers and stuff like that insisted mans use Linux is because of all the tools that are available on Linux platform. So by able to be able to use these tools in Windows, Microsoft is trying to get people to stay on Windows. That's essentially what this does. It accomplishes nothing beneficial to Linux, in my opinion, because it's not like they're making it so that uh, wine, uh, applications run better in Wine or anything like that. They're doing the opposite. So um, Microsoft has changed in the what it used to be. You know, like that they, they had this whole thing about Microsoft Hearts Linux and that sort of stuff. And I will say, Microsoft has significantly changed the way they used to be. They used to refuse to ever support open source in any way whatsoever. They have some open source projects now, that sort of stuff. But in terms of like, have they completely changed? I think this is a sign of no, no, they haven't. Because if they genuinely wanted to benefit the Linux ecosystem, they would, you know, do more things such as make Windows applications work better in Wine, help contribute to Wine in some way. I don't know. They could do that sort of stuff. But instead... They're pulling Linux applications into WSL so that you can run it on Windows. And uh, I think that's the opposite of Harding Linux. And I'm not a, not a fan of this. If you'd like to learn more about this, maybe I'm overreacting. I don't know. Um, let me know what you think in the comments. Maybe I am. Maybe I'm not. Let me know what you think in the comments below uh, or on the DLN forum thread that will be linked as well in the show notes. So more information about this if you'd like it in the show notes below. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started right now. Bitwarden is a password manager. And this is a, if you're not familiar with a password manager, this is software that allows you to have peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. And the way it does this by having a password vault that stores all of your password, it will automatically generate really complex passwords for you. And you don't have to remember those because they go into the vault. And then also you can automatically fill those passwords in for you through the uh, various different devices and stuff that it has support for. So it has support for uh, web, ex uh, web browser extensions, uh, mobile apps, desktop apps, even the command line. So you can store, uh, generate, and uh, automatically fill in those passwords really easy through these different tools. And they also have uh, one of the best things about it is in addition to all of this, it's also 100% open source software. That's right. It's 100% open source software. So in addition to having uh, really good uh, features and security and, and, and the infrastructure overall, you also can have the community can help vet and improve all of that code, as well as they even bring in third party security firms to audit the code to make sure it is as safe as possible. So if you're interested, go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. And this is actually not only addition, you can have all of these great tools that I've mentioned so far for free with the free account, but you can get also a bunch of other great options with one gigabyte encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F Duo, Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator for temporary one-time passwords, Priority Customer Service, and so much more. And you get all of it for less than a dollar per month. That's right. For just $10 per mere, per, 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 mere, per year, you can get all of this great stuff. So make the smart move like many from the community have and go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started and get, those, get the peace of mind for your passwords and other sensitive data. And 
you also be able to help a company that truly gets open source, get that $10 per year premium account. Also, if you have a family that you want, you can get the family account. They also have business accounts that you can save by being able to have multiple different accounts and be able to share passwords back and forth. It's such a smooth experience. If you have for example, if you want to have an account with your uh, significant other or if you have kids, you can be able to share passwords back and forth. And Bitwarden makes it so easy to do that. Check it out. Go to bitwarden.com slash dealing to get started. And thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring This Week in Linux. Up next in the show, we're going to be going into the app news. And first of all, we're going to start with the KDE Gear 21.04 release. And if you are not familiar, KDE Gear is the project that was the uh, KDE application suite. It's been renamed to KDE Gear. So this is the entire stack of the open source independent software suite that the KDE team makes. They renamed it uh, KDE, the KDE application software suite to the KDE Gear uh, just with this release. They, they mentioned it in a previous release that they're going to do it, but this is the first one I think that actually did it. Uh, and it kind of makes sense as a reference to the KDE logo because it has a cog or a gear in the logo. Uh, but at the same time, when I first heard it, the, the, the gear makes me think that some kind of hardware or maybe some merch or something like that. So I'm not, I don't know. You decide what you think of the name in general. But moving on, the actual applications, let's talk about what happened here. And there's a lot of cool stuff. So KDE Gear 2104 is packed with many different improvements and new features for a variety of different applications. Dolphin File Manager, we're going to talk about that. So first, it now lets you decompress multiple archives at the same time, which is very cool. It lets you modify the context menu items, which is super awesome. So if there's certain types of context items that you don't really want to use in those in the context menu, you can disable them. You can uh, modify the other, other items to say different things. Uh, thumbnail previews load much faster and also a lot more in Dolphin. We're going to move on. Also, we have Contact. The Personal Information Manager now supports AutoCrypt for encrypting your communications. They also have a traveling companion app called KDE Itinerary. And this is this this new version has uh, really cool stuff. It's basically, if you're not familiar, it's basically the way to keep track of your travel for like your uh, information related to airports and that sorts of stuff with your flights and your, your data, that thing, and it's all consolidated into this application. And this latest release also has some really interesting stuff with real-time status for elevators and escalators inside of train station map view. So that, I didn't know you could even do that, so that's kind of cool. Uh, and also many other new features in the KDE itinerary. And then moving on, we're going to talk about Kate uh, Advanced Text Editor. So it now comes with touchscreen scrolling support. It lets you perform basic Git operations. And something that I am a huge fan that they have added to this is this latest version automatically preserves and restores unsaved files or even unsaved changes in files when quitting or relaunching the application. So this, what this means is that you don't have to, let, let's say for example, your, your application crashed and you load it back up. You didn't lose anything because it's all still there. Because And also sometimes, and other editors that I, I use has this feature, so I'm really happy to see that Kate has it now. I will just sometimes like, I don't care about saving this necessarily, but I would like to have it in the future. So I'll just leave it open and close the application. And I don't know if that's a, a workflow that is suggested or recommended, but I kind of do that sometimes. So it's really cool to see that Kate has that now. And also the, do the document viewer for KDE, Ocular, has some new stuff. It has now supports fiction book files, supports playback of Media 9 PDF movie annotations, and it also now lets you digitally sign your documents directly in Ocular, which is so cool. Uh, and also the, there's improvements to the, K the Kden Live video editor. It now supports AV1 video codec formats. Uh, it's just so cool. So many more things that uh, can't really talk about everything that happened in these the, the KDE gear release because there's just so many. Uh, there's also the music player. Elisa's got a lot of cool stuff and many more. So if you want to check out the full release notes for all of the updates to the application suite for more details, link in the show notes below. Up next in the show, we have the latest release of the Geary email client for Geary 40. This is an open source free and lightweight email client. And this is a really interesting thing. It's made by the GNOME team. And the Geary email client has a lot of potential. It's a very nice, modern-looking uh, email client. It's got a lot of the basic fundamental features that you want. But it has been missing a, a few things. Now, this latest release has introduced some of those, which is fantastic. Now, first of all, before we get to that, they have it, they've refreshed the visuals of the, like, they've made a new icon for it. They've also changed the interface quite a bit. 
And they've also uh, added uh, some interesting support for a half screen and portrait mode for those who have small displays or have like vertical monitors and stuff like that, like I do. Uh, they've also improved performance when displaying large conversations. And one of the things that the search engine aspects of Geary wasn't uh, that great, but they have improved it and upgraded full text search engine, which is fantastic. They've also added uh, improved search for different languages, such as Thai and Chinese. They've also improved the keyboard shortcuts, uh, server compatibility with other types of email servers, uh, numerous uh, user interface translation updates and bug fixes and that sort of stuff. So this is something I, I haven't tried the latest version yet. It is available in a flat pack for those who are, you know, their repo doesn't update that fast for these kinds of things. If you want to check out the flat pack, that, that does have the latest version of 40. I do want to try it out. I'm very interested to see what all the changes uh, have done for the email client because it is a very nice looking email client versus you know thunderbird because thunderbird is functionally very powerful and has all the features that you want well not all of them but most of the features that you want but it does look like it was designed 15 years ago and it never changed because i think that's that's what happened uh but it's it, if i what my preference is is a combination of geary's design with the functionality of thunderbird that would be like the the best of both worlds uh, so maybe uh, Geary has made enough changes to you know get to that level. I don't know. When I'll, hopefully uh, they have in his latest version. If you'd like to try it out, check out the flat pack. Links in the show notes below. Up next in the show, the Jellyfin Project announced their new media player. So this is a Jellyfin client option intended to offer more user-friendly experience from the Jellyfin web player. So what it does is take the user interface from the web player, including the playback interface, and combines it with an extensive codec support thanks to the MPV player, which is awesome. I'm a big fan of MPV because MPV has a lot of cool features. It's one of the things that's kind of problematic about MPV, though, is that it doesn't have a, a UI. Like, it, it does have a UI, but not really. So it only has an, a, U, a UI when you uh, move your mouse and interact with it that way. However, it only has the bare fundamental basics of a media player. So it has the play, pause, uh, jump between chapters, depending on you know if it has support for that or not, and also changing your volume and that sort of stuff. Like it's very, very basic stuff. But functionally, MPV has a ton of cool features. Tons of it. Playback speed uh, increasing. Uh, you can change it based on like percentages. It has uh, be able to you know change frame by frame. You can do all sorts of stuff like quick shortcut methods. Uh, my favorite thing is being able to save your ability to uh, hit a shortcut and be able to save your place in the video and come back later exactly where you were. Such a cool feature in MPV. But anyway, one of the things about it is the UI not the best in terms for most people. Uh, so this is really cool to see Jellyfin making a media player to use their interface and sit it on top of MPV. So this client also brings support for selecting audio devices and configuring audio pass-through. It also supports changing refresh rate of your display to match the video content. You can control the client up with some remote controls, uh, game controllers, media keys through the uh, uh, Jellyfin's uh, TV display mode, and a bunch of other stuff. So this is really cool. And also, since it's built on MPV, it can use the mpv.comp file for being able to do uh, install scripts and shaders and all sorts of stuff with like tweaks and customizations and that sort of thing. So very cool. If you are ever interested in having your own media server, like uh, Plex or MB or whatever, uh, Jellyfin is an open source uh, approach to that sort of thing. And with this new media player, it makes it a lot more appealing to me and uh, many other people, I would assume, too. So if you want to check it out, links in the show notes below. Up next in the show, we have some Humble bundles to check out. There's a couple uh, bundles that I wanted to highlight because there's some programming bundles and a game bundle. Uh, for First of all, we'll start with the game. The Humble New Couch Classics Bundle has a variety of different games. It has uh, Ultimate Chicken Horse, which is kind of like a multiplayer party game. It's very fun. The name is super weird, but it's a very fun game. Uh, Lethal League Blaze is also available, and both of these games are native to Linux. Now, there's some other games also involved in this bundle, like Door Kickers, Action Squad, Nine Parchments, 20XX, Wargroove, and Biped, all of which 
are supported through Proton. Now, some of them are gold uh, gold rating and some of them are platinum rating. Uh, so you might want to check to see which one is which for you, depending on which one you, you prefer. Uh, but all of these games do seem to have really good quality ratings on ProtonDB, which is fantastic. So if you'd like to check it out, links in the show notes. Also, uh, in the pr- the ebook side, there is a headfirst programming bundle by O'Reilly, which has uh, ebooks related to Ruby, C, SQL, uh, JavaScript programming, uh, HTML and CSS, C Sharp, Go, Java, Kotlin, Python, and many, many more. So, if you want to check those out, links for those in the show notes as well. And again, there's only like a couple days left, but we talked about this in the last episode. The Ultimate Python Bookshelf Bundle by Packet is still available right now. So, if you want to learn Python, there is a lot of great stuff in there. So, check that out. So, I have links for that bundle as well. So, a couple more days left on that. There's a, I think, like a couple weeks on these new ones right now. So, if you want to, you could whatever, but uh, a couple more days left for the Ultimate Python Bookshelf Bundle. Uh, and also, for those who are, are not familiar, these are all uh, affiliate links below. So if you don't mind, please use those links because it does help out this show and this channel by giving a small, very small commission uh, per uh, purchase. If you do want get, get with these, if you want to get with these bundles, I would appreciate it very much to use those links. So there you go. Links to all of these bundles as well as some others because just you know you might want them. But I didn't, there's no need to highlight them on the show uh, necessarily. But if you want to get them anyway, I'll have links for those as well in the show notes. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on this show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the channel and the show, we have multiple ways to contribute via PayPal, Patreon, sponsors, and many others. You can learn more by going to tuxdigital.com contribute. And you can also become a patron. And by becoming a patron, you get to join me and during the live stream in the recording stadium to discuss stuff between the topics and also to hang out after the show every week because we have a, a, po- a patron-only post show that happens every week. So be- feel free to uh, become, a, become a patron. But you can also just join us live because we do this show live every Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern or 1800, no, 1700 right now, UTC. So join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each week by going to dealinlive.com. And by the way, have you heard of the Deal In Store? There's so many great things in the Deal In Store. You can order the Linux Everest t-shirt. You can order this shirt, the This Week in Linux shirt, as well as many more. We also have uh, hoodies, mugs, uh, t-shirts. We have now stickers and hats. We even have die-cut stickers now. Uh, which is really cool. And an extra bonus, these stickers are not just die-cut stickers, they're die-cut and they have transparent options. So you can have them basically blend whatever you want to. Super cool. Those are available in the Dealin Store. Go to dealinstore.com to check those out. And if you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux and Hardware Addicts, as I'm a co-host of both of those shows on the Destination Linux network. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tunnell with DLN, and as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux, and I'll see you next week for another episode of your weekly source for Linux good news.